Hi everyone, welcome to podcast number 18 from the HRW Shift team. My name is Alex and today we are chatting to Rhiannon Phillips. Hi Rhiannon. Hi Alex and hi everyone. It's lovely to be here again. Lovely to have you. Thank you for being here. Last time we had a podcast, we had a look at why we wasted our free time, taking into account the passive activities that we do and flow or enriching activities. And one of the aspects that we focused on was the amount of time that we spend on social media when we could be doing something more beneficial or work on something we had planned to, such as reading a book or maybe painting a wall. And as we spend that much time online, and it's so much easier now to access social networks for everyone. Today, we will have a look at whether they're actually good or bad for us and what effects their usage has on us. And I'm really looking forward to discussing research done by, by Rhiannon, our senior behavioral scientist. And we will also draw some discussion material from a short survey we carried in our media network on a few tens of people. So Rhiannon, tell us about how you came to do your research and why you focused on Facebook. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, it's a very good question, actually. And I guess taking it from the very top, my thesis is actually titled meaningful connection or simply connectivity, Facebook connection, disconnection and loneliness. When I started out, I actually started out with a very kind of different question. So I had stumbled across some statistics from the NSPCC and Child Minds. For our international listeners, the NSPCC is the National Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Um, and Childline is a telephone helpline, a bit like Samaritans, if you're familiar with that, where children can call a free phone number if they're experiencing feelings of distress or despair or even suicidal feelings. And so when I stumbled across these statistics in 2013-14, which was when I was writing the thesis, I kind of found them really quite alarming. So one of the things that they were reporting from their data from the preceding year, so the 2012-13 period, was that self-harming behaviour or phone calls or reaching out contacts about self-harming behaviour had increased 41% on the previous year and was mentioned in over 24,000 phone calls. They'd seen a 50% rise in contact about that from 12 to 15 year olds specifically. They'd observed an 87% increase on online bullying, people seeking support for that. And then I think perhaps most alarmingly of all, they'd noticed a 33% increase in suicidal thoughts or feelings overall, and 43% again in that 12 to 15 year old age bracket. And obviously those statistics are they're quite distressing, quite disturbing. And that really got me to thinking, well, what on earth could have changed in their lives in this period so significantly to result in this dramatic increase in, in these sorts of statistics that we're seeing here? And it could be explained away by increased publicity or awareness of child violence and SPCC in and of itself. And so that got me to thinking, well, actually, what's changed in their life, which led me to social media? And I thought, well, could that be a factor in it? So I started looking into social media and found that the literature was actually very divided. It was more or less evenly split. Around 50% of it said that social media was very beneficial to someone's sense of well-being, and that had a lot of compelling evidence. And also 50% of it said that it was actually very detrimental to someone's sense of well-being, and that also had equally compelling evidence. And so that kind of left a bit of a conundrum. And I was thinking, well, how can it be both things? Perhaps it's not that social media in and of itself is good or bad, but rather it's a tool and perhaps it's the way that that tool is being used that's a factor. So I started looking for the research to kind of affirm this theory so that then I could map it across to the young people that, were, that I was interested in better understanding, but found to my genuine surprise that actually 
social media was such a new evolution in things in, from a research perspective that actually that literature didn't exist. There was no literature that demonstrated whether it was active or passive use, which was my working theory at the time, that could, could account for this difference. So that then meant led me to taking a bit of a back step. So instead of asking what's changing in the lives of these young people, so that led me to take a step back and then ask, is it perhaps the way that social media is being used that is the factor as to whether or not it's beneficial or detrimental to a sense of well-being? With that as my question, I had to also narrow that down as well, because obviously there are a number of different social network sites. But at this point in time, sort of seven or so years ago, Facebook had been around for 10 years. And at that point in time, was definitely the most dominant form of social media being used. So I chose to focus on that. And I found very helpfully, in fact, that my theory was definitely firmed in the research that I did. Out of the data, we found that there were four different user profiles that were divided in how they actively or passively use social media. And the difference as to whether or not their sense of well-being was affected came down to two things. One, what is it they were seeking from Facebook? And the other thing was how they were using it. So that active or passive use and whether or not they were using it both with feelings of loneliness. Those were the two critical factors. Well, thank you for sharing that. Those stats are really alarming. And to me, when I when I read that in your thesis, what was immediately even more alarming was the fact that in other parts of the world, perhaps they don't even have access to those services. They don't even have anyone to call. Yeah, and I think the research that you did is, is still very, very relevant, especially when we saw in our survey, 80% of people reported they still use Facebook today. So when you wrote your thesis, did you still think it was going to be relevant? Well, now seven years after you've written it or more. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question, actually. I guess the answer to that is kind of yes and no. I saw it as a space that was so rapidly evolving that I kind of thought that what I was doing would be outdated, that many, many other people would have had the same idea and that more research into this kind of dynamic, this active passive use would be available. And while there has been a little bit of a hint at that, it's not actually caught on quite as rapidly as I thought. So I guess I guess my theory was more novel than I appreciated at the time. But I did think that it would still be relevant because social media is not going anywhere. It's not, it's not going to disappear. There's only going to be more platforms and different ways of interacting. And even within those platforms, like Facebook itself, for example, has evolved. So the activities that I was able to conduct my survey on have now expanded and there are many different dimensions to it now. So there wasn't Facebook Marketplace, for example. News feeds were different. That there wasn't advertising. So yes and no. I, I thought it would still be relevant, but not the extent that potentially it is. And so I think... In terms of it still being relevant, it's kind of been reaffirmed to me that it is by the most recent information that's come from Francis Halden, the uh, Facebook whistleblower. And so Facebook, which now owns Instagram, had or has their own data that Instagram was detrimentally impacting young people's mental health and in particular making body images worse for teen girls. We know that this has always been quite a sensitive topic for, for teenage girls, more so for teenage boys as it's growing, but definitely you know, something that they've had to contend with for a very long time. And they had internal data that they'd sat on and actively suppressed for two years, showing that it make, Instagram makes body images worse for one in three teen girls. And that 32% of teen girls said that when they already felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse, which is obviously quite concerning. And one of the things that she said that really stuck with me was the median experience on Facebook 
is a pretty good experience. The real danger is that 20% of the population has a horrible experience or an experience that's dangerous. For those of us who haven't taken maths in a very long time, uh, the median is the middle figure. So if you were to line everything all up, it's value that sits right in the middle there. So what she was saying with that is the people who sit on one of the extremes, they have uh, a much more troubling time with it. And again, that actually circled back round to what I was finding in my data. So we had these four different user profiles and we found that one of these profiles, browsers, that was the group that was most at risk and they accounted for roughly 15% of my sample. So bearing in mind that this was something that I did seven years ago when the platform was still a little bit different, there weren't as many users as there are now. The fact that browsers account for 15% of my sample and she was saying that 20% of the sample sits in that bucket of having a poor or bad or damaging experience. I think there's, there's quite, there's a margin of error there that suggests that those two things could potentially be related. And I would, I would hazard a, a, an educated guess that they are. Oh, well, that's pretty, pretty damning evidence, Rhiannon. I was reading an article in Newport Academy and media psychologist Don Grant said that one way through, uh, through which social media has a negative effect on teen mental health in particular is through these comparisons. He called that compare and despair when teenagers wow. on social media, yeah, they, they look, much of their time is spent they're looking at images that their peers put up, which depict a nice life usually. Yeah. Any out of this compare and despair leads to low self-esteem, low confidence about you know, one's body image. And this all feeds into these increased numbers from depression and anxiety among, among teens that we've seen. Yeah. And, and actually, that makes a lot of sense, really, because if you think about it, things that we post on social media, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or even sort of an anecdote from my daily life on Twitter, it tends to be what we could consider a highlights reel. Like I show you the best parts of my life, the things that I'm yeah. excited about doing, the social gatherings, the glamorous night at the party, the delicious brunch that I had with a friend. I don't I don't show you the mundane, oh, I've got to hoover the house today and do a whole load of work adult life admin. You know, no one shows that part. But I think maybe for these teenage groups who have grown up in this era of social media, who genuinely don't remember a time before social media, you know, it didn't, it, they grew up with it, that perhaps that perspective potentially is lacking. And one of my concerns was that essentially constantly being connected on social media may be shaping and changing their social and emotional development in these sorts of ways. Um, and the way social media keeps us engaged works in a number of different ways. So obviously my thesis, we were looking at connection and disconnection and we found that it's how you use it. So how you use it rewards your behavior in a certain way. Um, there's also this social comparison element. And we know that as adolescents, our peers are one of the most significant influences on our lives. We're still forming our views on who we are and what we think and what we believe and how these diverge from perhaps what our parents have raised us to believe. So we're really establishing our own sense of identity and sense of self. And at that point in time, our peer network is critical in defining that. So that draw to social media to see what's going on in other people's lives is really compelling. And um, to kind of expect them not to do that would essentially be like asking them to stand in the corner of the room. You know, you're, you're asking someone, if you're asking an adolescent or, or a young person to kind of forego social media, you're asking them to voluntarily stand in the corner of the room. You know, they're socially ostracized. Um, so, so there's that kind of dynamic to it. And there's also the dopamine reward system that is all tied in with the like feature. Every time we post something that has that little like button, we can't help but 
want to know whether or not people have liked that you know has someone looked at it and responded to it and that all ties in with essentially the dopamine reward system it's very clever it's very compelling and if you're not aware of it it can be quite concerning because essentially that like feature taps into the same psychological processes that are activated by gambling so slot machines are a perfect uh, analogy so when we're using a slot machine players have no way of knowing how many times they have to play before they win all they know is that eventually a player will win and it could be them and so with each coin they insert it takes them one step closer to winning that unknown but guaranteed payout and it's this unpredictability that makes players really reluctant to quit because there's always a possibility that it's the very next coin that will be the winning one and eventually they do win um, and not only is there a financial reward but it's accompanied by a flood of dopamine which is a, a one of the brain's feel-good hormones and that's the same system that we see with the light function so in psychology this is known as a variable reward system it's a form of operant conditioning and so the unpredictability of likes combined with the social significance of them means that when we receive one it's interpreted by the brain the same way as a win on a slot machine. So we get this massive rush of dopamine, which encourages us to repeat behavior. So it's that unpredictability combined with the reward uh, when we do win that keeps us checking those statuses and returning for more, constantly chasing that light. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think this doesn't all, only apply to teenagers. We see, you know, in adults on, on Instagram pictures where, you know, work hard, play hard, or, oh, I'm working at 10 p.m. This is great. Hashtag hustle, you know, and it seems fine to do those things. Or, oh, you know, I've got to go to these exotic countries or party until late at night to keep up, to enjoy my life, to have a busy life. And that can also be very negative. People bought houses or achieved this sort of traditional, went up the traditional ladder, you know, and it can lead to um, fear of missing out on. And it's, it can be difficult to keep hold of one's self and of who we are when so many things are pulling at us to just change and go with the current. And I was wondering, actually, if, if this was linked, you know, sharing all this on social media and looking at people was linked to us as humans gossiping which is an evolutionary trait that we've developed in our communities to to maintain relationships yeah very much so it's, it's essentially it's um cognitive form of social grooming if you like by kind of interacting in this way we're reinforcing those social bonds you know each time a friend posts a status and you like their status you're forming that connection they see that it's you it's kind of rewarding so yeah that's that's very astute it's it's up to us to rein ourselves in and not spend too much time doing that the people we surveyed mentioned that these social comparisons are present and they found that they, they didn't like that either and the majority of them were over 25 years of age so again yeah, i was in teens and these problems still mm. still appear even in adulthood or late in adulthood and i think that in itself the like button can have a potential for a more indirect negative consequence because you may get people that think oh this and so person who's meant to be my best friend didn't like my picture wasn't happy for me that i bought this new fluffy dog and <laughs> oh no chaos and susan we can't be friends ever again that's it <laughs> yeah 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 and they're kind of I suppose that is the flip side, isn't it? It's like posting a status and no one responds to it. Oh no, does everyone hate me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, ooh, what did I say? Yeah. Or you know when you're added to a close friendship group when people share their stories. I always think, oh, you know, someone thinks I'm a close friend. And then I realize, well, I met that person once. <laughs> yeah, are we, are we there yet? <laughs> yeah. Are we there? 
at the green circle of Instagram yet. <laughs> it's funny. It's actually that kind of brings us full circle to something else I observed, which was, you know, the, the kind of idly made question. Yeah, but how many of your Facebook friends are real friends? Yeah. It's actually more insightful than perhaps we might give it credit for. I was trying to only add people that I met in real life. But again, that's not not all of them are friends. Some of them are pleasant acquaintances that we have. Mm. But circling back to um, the different user profiles that you identified in your thesis, could you tell us a bit more about them, about the differences between them and why certain ones are more at risk of experiencing negative effects of social media on Facebook in particular, rather than positive effects? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. So just taking a little bit of a back step, obviously the research itself is premised around active or passive use. So active use was defined as something that involved a direct interaction with another person. So commenting on something, messaging something, liking something, something that communicated directly with a person. Passive use, in contrast, was defined as not doing that. Lots of reading of information, absorbing things, but not directly interacting. So no communication. And so we came out with four different user profiles. So we had the intensive users who like the name sounds, did a lot of very active stuff and a lot of passive stuff. So they messaged people, they talked to people, they commented on stuff, but they also spent a lot of time reading all of the content available. Then we had the interactives who did a lot of active things, but that was it. They didn't really do a lot of the passive stuff. So they used it primarily to talk with their friends, to message with their friends, to share photos with their friends directly. And that was what they were restricted to. Then we had some dabblers who kind of dipped in and out. So they I guess, can be characterised as using it very functionally. They don't really care for it a terrible amount, but they also recognise that if they don't have some form of social media, if they don't have Facebook, there are things that they miss out on. So events, gatherings, parties, they won't know about them because people say, oh, I invited you on Facebook. And obviously, if you're not on Facebook, you don't pick up that uh, pick up that invite. But this final profile, the browsers, who did a lot of passive use only, so they read a lot of content that they didn't message, they didn't like, they didn't comment, that was the group that was most at risk of feeling or having Facebook have a detrimental effect on their sense of well-being. And it essentially came down to a critical factor. And the critical factor was whether or not they used Facebook to cope with feelings of loneliness. Now, the intensive users did. So they were the ones who did a lot of active use, a lot of passive use, and they used Facebook to cope with feelings of loneliness. And browsers did as well. So when they feel lonely, they go to Facebook. But the intensives, because they engage in much more active communication, they were, as it sounds, they were directly having an interaction, an exchange with people that they were close to. And there was one other final critical factor, and that's whether or not these profiles admitted to using Facebook to cope with feelings of loneliness. And two did and two didn't. So the interactives didn't use it to cope with feelings of loneliness, and nor did the dabblers. But the intensives, so the ones that did a lot of active and passive use did, and so did the browsers. But of course, the intensives themselves engaged in a lot more active communication. And so they were getting something from Facebook that the browsers weren't. And all of this kind of ties in very neatly and is very effectively accounted for by something called belongingness theory. And so belongingness theory is all about what we require to have relationships that are meaningful and satisfying. So belonging to a social group, to each other, is a human need. It's a fundamental drive. It's not something that we can elect not to do. So it's essential. It's as essential to us as water 
and food. Uh, and this is because it's how we've evolved to be the most dominant species on the planet. You know, we don't have sharp teeth or claws, you don't have thick skin or fur, we're not terribly fast or strong, we don't have great eyesight, we don't have any of the physical attributes that make survival easier for, for animals in the wild. Our unique trait that's allowed us to thrive is our ability to coexist with each other in communities. And we protect each other, we support each other, and so through evolution, that has become a fundamental need. And if we think about how we punish people, you know, social ostracism, expelling them from a group, taking them to prison if it's really extreme, and even within prison, the ultimate punishment is solitary confinement. And this is all tied back to the fact that we're a herd creature. So belonging is a fundamental need that we cannot escape or avoid. And so for belonging to occur, we need two things. So our relationships need to be characterized by a frequency of contact. So we need to see and speak with and interact with um, our peers, loved ones often enough. And those relationships need to be characterized by depth of care. So it has to be a meaningful relationship where each person genuinely cares about each other, their lives, what's happening in them. And if you have one or other of these, you end up in a state that's termed partial deprivation. So you have part of your need for belonging there and part of it not. So if you think about a child whose parents are divorcing, that depth of care hasn't changed. Their mom or dad doesn't love them any less despite the separation. But what's changed is that frequency of contact. And because they're not seeing that parent so much, it creates feelings of distress. And so that is obviously a, a state of deprivation. They're missing something. And conversely, the depth of care factor if you were to have a personal or family emergency, when you go into work the next day, you're unlikely to share all of that information with your 20 or so colleagues that you share the office with. It will probably be one, two, maybe at most three people that you would immediately share your particular circumstance with to gain that social support from them. And what we find is really interesting about social networks and social media and especially Facebook, which was obviously the focus of this research, is that it is exceptionally good at providing for frequency of contact. So we are able to keep track of and see and monitor the lives of so many people that would have dropped off of our social sphere or social radar if we didn't have social network. You know, I'm still Facebook friends, friends uh, with people that I went to high school with, um, university, former jobs, and they're people that you, you like, you like, you care about. But the natural evolution of time and life means that over time, those relationships kind of diminish in their significance and other relationships increase in their significance. But Facebook allows us to stay in contact with them. And so that meets one of our needs for belonging. But if we don't actively engage with people, if we're not directly communicating with them, talking with them, we don't experience that depth of care. And so this is what we see with these two profiles that, and the critical difference is that intensives with their active style of communication means that they get that depth of care. And so what that means is that Facebook is exceptionally good at giving us that frequency of contact. You know, people that would have dropped off our social sphere a long time ago, we are still in touch with. But if we're not actively engaging with them, if we're not directly communicating with them, exchanging conversation in some way, shape or form, that depth of care need isn't being met. And so intensives with their active style, they do get that depth of care. But browsers, with their very passive consumption of reams and reams of content, but not talking with people, they don't get that depth of care. 
But if we recall, they're both still looking to Facebook to satisfy feelings of loneliness. And so what we see is that both of these groups are looking for Facebook to help with feelings of loneliness. So when they feel lonely, they go to Facebook. And what happens? Well, they have that frequency of contact need met. So they experience a peak in connection, which is great. But for the browsers, because it lacks depth of care, it doesn't last. And so it spirals down. It's a little bit like feeling lonely. So going to a bar or a coffee shop, but not actually speaking or interacting with people. A social act is only a social act if you interact with people. Because we have a peaking connection with frequency of contact, that need for loneliness to be met is partially met. And so you end up in this feedback loop where, oh, I feel a bit lonely. What did I do last time? Oh, well, I went on Facebook and I felt a bit better. And so they go to Facebook and they feel a bit better, but then it doesn't last. And so they spiral down again and it keeps repeating. Yeah. And, uh, and I think we see this a bit in real life as well. I was reading a study in psychology today which said that, um, so he was talking about a study done on uh, commuters on a train in Chicago, where when they talked to strangers, they felt better than when they sat in silence on the train, even though they initially predicted the opposite result. And this, this was uh, applicable for both extroverts and introverts. That's so really it seems like... Yeah, it seems like it's always better to, it's more, more beneficial to engage. Or of course, if you want to, you know, have your own thoughts while you're heading to an interview or something. I don't know, it might still be good to talk to a stranger. But uh, yeah, it, it was interesting that it was better for both extroverts and introverts. Yeah, that is really interesting. Because I think yeah. I think one of the other things that's important to keep in mind here is that um, experience of loneliness is subjective. Um, mm-hmm. Some people really enjoy their own company. And so they can be on their own for hours, days at a time and thrive. You know, it's a bit of a running joke with the pandemic, isn't it? Oh, I mean, <laughs> I've been planning for this all my life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and conversely, you can have people who are surrounded by other people and yet still feel lonely. So it, loneliness is a very subjective experience. But the point is, is that if you're looking for something to satisfy that need, if you're feeling lonely and you want that to be ameliorated, you have to engage with people. You have to interact. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we saw some of the bad examples or some of the negatives that people um, mentioned with regards to social media. We saw people mentioning bullying in our survey. Someone mentioned, and which relates to our previous podcast, that it's very time-consuming, sometimes mindlessly scrolling, and a lot of time passes by. It can be addictive and bad for the eyes. But people also mention things like, of course, fake news or misrepresenting the world and how people are feeling and just a drain on time and attention, if nothing more. But people also mention positives of social Mm. media. And as you said, it allows us to stay in contact with people we might not see for ages. And although we could do that in a more traditional way, you know, picking up the phone or sending an email. Or... Just taking a moment to marvel at the fact that you described an email as traditional. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, thinking, I, was talking to, I was talking to a stranger on the train the other day. It was, it was a teenage girl. And she said that she had a pen friend from oh, wow. Sri Lanka, I think. And they were writing emails. So I thought, okay, you know, people still write emails. Still keep in touch. <laughs> in terms of good aspects of social media, people did mention this, you know, seeing pictures of friends, sharing with friends. It's easier than to, you know, send to them individually. Yeah. People also mentioned there's a wide variety of information that you can reach. There are now Instagram or Facebook accounts that tell people how to check for breast cancer, for example. Yeah. Or 
men's suicide awareness campaigns that go on social media. So you can have these positives. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. And yeah, of course, definitely. funny, funny cat pictures. <laughs> funny cat pictures. Yeah. Nothing is complete without funny cat pictures. But yeah, no, that's and that is a very important point. So you know, as I mentioned, the browsers only made up fifteen percent, and the interactives and the intensives they actually benefited. Like they had a positive sense of well-being. So it can be very positive. And again, it, it just fundamentally is how are we using it? That is the question. And I think I think that's kind of the key point, really. So yeah, so social media allows us to stay in touch with people that we love and care about who are literally on the other side of the planet. And um, for a, a time, one of my former partners was uh, a Kiwi, still is, <laughs> just not my partner anymore. <laughs> um, but you know, he was able to use social media to stay in touch with his family, who were literally an entire part, like an entire day apart in time zone so you know it's definitely it definitely has its upside it's just about being aware of how we use it and be mindful of how much time we spend on it and connecting with friends uh, so the balance doesn't tip all the other way uh, what i really don't like though is the scene button mm. because i think that puts lots of pressure on people and again it can influence relationships negatively when people say oh you, you've seen my message like two days ago or even two hours ago but you haven't replied yet am i not important here well I'm not the center of their world so they don't have to <laughs> guide their life by my messages and yeah it's really nice to keep in touch with people that we know we haven't seen in ages these relationships might not have existed otherwise but thinking of social media as a whole with good and bad I was wondering whether um, you've ever taken a break from social media yeah I have actually I ended up taking a two-year break and it was one it was something that I was able to kind of reflect on from an academic perspective and say oh you know that's actually quite interesting but obviously needed a bit of distance from the space essentially uh, I lost a friend who was very important to me uh, very unexpectedly and I found out about their passing on Facebook not because someone had messaged me or said there's something I need to talk about but because someone had tagged a picture of her with angel's wings and she was being treated for cancer at the time she was doing well so you know we fully expected to catch up the next time i was in milton Keynes. but um she contracted an infection in hospital and in the space of just a few weeks had passed away so finding that out in that way was actually extremely distressing as you, you might imagine and so for me those kind of feelings became associated with facebook and i just didn't want to look at it so I took a took a long break from that. But I think the other thing that I was able to kind of look at academically speaking and say, well, do you know what? I'm not I'm not the first. I won't be the last. Like this is something that will be increasingly common because it's just the nature of how our lives are evolving now. And you know, social media, Facebook, when I wrote this, had only been in existence for 10 years. So probably closing in on what, 17 years now. But the longer these things are around, the more likely that scenario is to to catch up. But of course, the flip side to that. Um, was that actually because I saw that message I was able to attend her funeral and tell her parents and her little boy how significantly she had touched my life and that was actually a it was quite a gift I think I can see what it meant to them what it meant to me to be able to tell them that so you know there was a two sides to the coin there. Thank you for sharing that with us Rhiannon and sorry for the loss of your friend. I can't claim to understand what you felt like when you saw the news, but I guess, you know, it's the fact that you're, you can be somewhere public that just hits you in the face rather than, you know, if you're at home and, you know, in your sofa and you might be able to have a bit of privacy to deal with that in your own terms. Mm. I find myself taking breaks from social media when I'm on holiday, actually. Um, we've asked people as well in the survey and 
the majority of them said they, they've taken a break from Facebook. That was 20 people. I like what someone mentioned when asked to give a reason for why they took a break from social media. And they said, quote, stopped using Facebook entirely, mostly as it wasn't interesting to me. As my preference was to avoid sharing personal information unless needed, my feed was very vanilla. And other people's lives aren't usually that interesting. <laughs> oh. And I really like that. <laughs> I, th- I thought it was really cool. Fair enough. <laughs> Just keeping in mind what you found about the use of social media and how you know, we still use it nowadays, what were your conclusions? Yeah, so essentially, we kind of concluded that fundamentally, social networks and Facebook specifically are not inherently good or bad, but rather it's the way that we use it that's the critical factor. You know, in the same way that chocolate isn't inherently good or bad, you know, it doesn't make us fat, it's not responsible for that. It's how we choose to consume it that is the critical dynamic there. But in the same way that we are educated on what makes a healthy, balanced lifestyle, so chocolate in moderation, for example, I do think big tech firms that own these platforms do have a responsibility to educate users on what is safe and sensible use. And we have entire generations of parents who don't understand what their children are doing on there. And if you don't understand what your children are doing, how can you keep them safe? To return to the point that we sort of touched on earlier with uh, Francis Halpin and the whistleblower from Facebook, who observed that they had internal data saying that they make body images worse for one in three teen girls, and that they knew that and actively suppressed that data. That is not acting responsibly, that is not educating your audience. And I think that there's room for them to kind of step up there. Perhaps we should ask producers of social media to um, swear on a Hippocratic oath to do no harm to their users. And maybe we should be looking for the dark chocolate of social media. I think it does come down to education. When we go to the supermarket these days, it's not uncommon for us to see circular icons of pies that break down the sugar, fat, salt content on food. And it makes it really easy to make an informed decision. But if you lack awareness, if you don't have that information, you can't make sensible decisions. You can't keep yourself safe. You can't control for that. And you can't keep your family safe. And so I think there's a real necessity for children and young people to be educated, but also parents. We need people to be aware of what is safe use, what is not safe use. And we need to protect the young people using it who are the most vulnerable. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Rhiannon, for your insights and for sharing your research with us. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope to catch you on the next podcast. But for now, it's bye from me. It's a bye from me. If you'd like to get in touch with us, head over to our Twitter at HWShift. See you in the new year.